Our second reading this morning comes to us from a couple of chapters later in Luke's biography of Jesus. We're reading from chapter 16, verses 14, and then 19 to 31. Listen for God's word to you. The Pharisees who loved money heard all this and were sneering at Jesus. He said to them, There was a rich man who was dressed in purple and fine linen and lived in luxury every day. At his gate was laid a beggar named Lazarus, covered with sores and longing to eat what fell from the rich man's table. Even the dogs came and licked his sores. The time came when the beggar died, and the angels carried him to Abraham's side. The rich man also died and was buried. In Hades, where he was in torment, he looked up and saw Abraham far away with Lazarus by his side. So he called to him, Father Abraham, have pity on me, and send Lazarus to dip the tip of his finger in water and cool my tongue, because I am in agony in this fire. But Abraham replied, Son, remember that in your lifetime you received good things, while Lazarus received bad things. But now he is comforted here, and you are in agony. And besides all this, between us and you, a great chasm has been set in place, so that those who want to go from here to you cannot, nor can anyone cross over from there to us. He answered, Then I beg you, Father, send Lazarus to my family, for I have five brothers. Let him warn them, so they will not also come to this place of torment. Abraham replied, They have Moses and the prophets. Let them listen to them. No, Father Abraham, he said, But if someone from the dead goes to them, they will repent. He said to him, If they do not listen to Moses and the prophets, they will not be convinced even if someone rises from the dead. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Pastors aren't supposed to have favorite parts of Scripture. We're supposed to love the whole Bible. We're supposed to love it all equally. And and mostly I do. There's some parts of Leviticus I have trouble with. But Luke is Luke is an odd Luke is an odd place. The the biography we just heard from from Luke, um, there's four biographies in the in the of uh, Jesus in the Bible, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And I have this this uh, strange relationship with Luke's biography because I, I love parts of it. But I also don't like parts of it. The, I love the, the parable of the Good Samaritan. I, I love the parable of the prodigal son. But, you know, if Luke was t- around today, and if he was like on Facebook, I probably would unfriend him because I just can't stand the way he just bangs on and on about the rich. Luke keeps talking on and on about the rich. And worse than that, I have a pretty good idea when he's talking about the rich, he's talking about me. Here's, here's what I mean by that. What did I do with my... Let me give you some statistics. Luke talks more about the rich, rich people and riches, than the other three biographies of Jesus. In fact... He says more about riches than the other three, than, than, than two times as much as the other three put together. Okay? Luke bangs on and on about the rich. 
The only New Testament writer who says more about the rich is Paul. And when Paul talks about the rich, he's talking about the riches of God, how God is rich in mercy, how God pours out blessings from his, his riches. But with Luke, the references in Luke are almost all negative. If you come back next week, you'll hear one of the very few exceptions in Luke. He talks about a rich man named Zacchaeus. And it's going to be one of the very few places you'll find in Luke where he has anything good at all to say about rich people. Only James has an outlook on the rich as negative as Luke. And the thing is, Luke didn't make it up, right? Luke is just quoting Jesus. And so we have to know who is Luke talking about because that's telling us who Jesus is talking about. And my fear, actually my conviction, is that Luke is talking about me. By any global or historical standard, I am rich. I'm an American. Here's what I mean. In 1972, I was 11 years old. The average American in 1972 had an, uh, uh, an income of $25,000 per person, per adult, in 1972. In 2004, it was half again as much. It was $38,000 in constant dollars. So just in my lifetime, Americans have become 50% richer. As a result, America is the third richest country in the world today um, per person. Um, we, we are behind Switzerland, which is a little tiny country, and Australia, which is a big land but a small nation. We are by far the richest country in the world. Germany is the economic powerhouse of the European Union. The average wealth in America is twice the average wealth in Germany. The average per-person wealth in the United States is 15 times the wealth of China. It's 89 times the average wealth in India. This country, with 5% of the world's population, has a third of its total wealth. So I'm pretty sure that Luke is talking to me when he goes on and on about the rich. So, what do I do with this? What do I do with Luke's teaching about the rich? What do you do it? Because he's talking to you too. You know, I think all of us have kind of in the, if we've heard the Bible at all before, you've probably heard somewhere, there's the, the place, the, the terrifying place where Jesus tells the rich young ruler, he says, go sell all you have, give it to the poor and follow me. And I think all of us have in the back of our head, what if he says that to me? Well, he did not make that a mandate on Christians generally, but he did tell one person. And if he told one, maybe he's telling another, you will have to talk that over with Jesus yourself. But Jesus did not make that a mandate for the church. So what was he talking about? Does he want you to phone your senator and start lobbying for higher tax rates? Higher tax rates on the rich, of course, forgetting that we are the rich. Is he calling you to give up your PFD so we can fund a more generous social safety net? I think Jesus is actually calling us to do something far more radical. I think Jesus is asking us to do something far more radical than any of those. Jesus is asking us to tear down the wall. 
or at least to open the gate and bring Lazarus inside. In the the letter to the Ephesians, Paul kind of says, let's stand back a minute. Let's go way back. Let's get a big picture view of what it is that God is up to. And in that um, in that letter, Paul Paul says this. I think we've got the slides coming up. Um, he says, uh, for he himself, he, Jesus, is our peace, who made the two groups one and has destroyed the barrier, the dividing wall of hostility. And he goes on to say, consequently, you are no longer foreigners and strangers, but fellow citizens with God's people and also members of his household. What God is up to, the, the big picture idea of what God is doing, is reconciling humanity to himself and humans to each other. That's the big picture, Paul says. And the way it plays out, as we see in our lesson today, is it means breaking down the walls and letting Lazarus in. So what I'd like to do is look at this passage of Scripture, um, chapter 16. I included a little bit of uh, context. Um, Jesus had just told the, the audience something about the rich And the Pharisees who loved money heard all this and were sneering at Jesus. So Jesus tells them this other parable. He says there was a rich man who lived in purple and fine linen and lived in luxury every day. Now for us, purple is just a color. You go to, you know, a clothing store and it's no more expensive or no, no cheaper than any other color. In Bible times, it was an exotic dye you had to get from a foreign country and they made it out of snails. So purple was expensive. And fine cloth of any kind, fine linen, was also expensive. So this man has a great amount of wealth. And it says he lives luxuriously. Now the thing about the living luxuriously, that's the exact same word we heard repeatedly last week. When we heard the story of the lost son, the parable of the prodigal son. It says that the son came home and the father killed the fatted calf. And they began to... Celebrate. They began to live luxuriously. And then the father goes out and pleads with the older son, please come in. We have to celebrate. We have to live luxuriously because your, your brother who was lost is found. Your brother who is dead is now alive. We have to celebrate. We have to live luxuriously. There's nothing wrong with living luxuri- luxuriously. In fact, the church is commanded to live luxuriously. The problem is that at his gate was laid a beggar named Lazarus, who was covered with sores and longing to eat what fell from the rich man's table. So, I'm sorry, uh, number one, I need my thing. Number one, the church is called to celebrate, so that's number one. Um, so, uh, uh, the problem is not the celebration, the problem is there's a beggar outside the gate. He longs to fill his fill himself with uh, with what falls from the rich man's table. Again, echoes of chapter fifteen. You remember last week as we heard as we heard the story of the the prodigal son. The the prodigal son, when he was in the far country and the money ran out, he hired himself out to feed pigs, and he longed to fill his belly with what the pigs ate, but nobody gave him anything, and that's what brought him to his senses. That's what started him on his journey home. And in the same way, Lazarus longs to eat what fell from the rich man's table. But again, no one gives him anything. But eventually, the beggar dies. And the angels carry him to Abraham's side, the, the bosom of Abraham from the old song. 
And then we read, the rich man also died. We don't hear anything about angels, just that he was buried. And in Hades, where he was in torment, he looked up and saw Abraham far away. Now, don't get hung up on the geography here, but basically the, the, the words, the, the picture that Jesus is drawing here is he's saying that there is the domain of the dead, basically the waiting room for eternity. Someday the resurrection will come. And until that time, we are in Hades. We're in the bosom of Abraham. We are in the domain of the dead. But the domain of the dead has two districts. There's the uptown district, the bosom of Abraham. That's where, that's where Lazarus is. And then there's the low rent district, just called plain old Hades. And that's where the rich man is. And they are there until the resurrection and the, the, the judgment that we read about in Revelation. So he's there, he looks up, and far away he can see Father Abraham and Lazarus. And he says, Father Abraham, have pity on me. Send Lazarus to dip the tongue of his finger in water and cool my tongue, because I am in agony in this fire. And Abraham says, no. Abraham says, no. You had it good, and now it's Lazarus's time. He's not your flunky. He's relaxing. He is being comforted. He says, you received your good things while Lazarus received bad things, and now he is comforted here. He's not your flunky. He doesn't have to go do anything for you. And besides, he says, between us and, and you, a great chasm has been set in place. And those who want to go from here to you cannot, nor can anyone cross over from there to us. So the man says, well then, okay, if he can't come here, if he can't cross the barrier, then send him to the land of the living. Send him to my family. I have five brothers. Let him warn them so they will not also come to this place of torment. And Abraham says they've got the Bible. They've got Moses and the prophets. Let them listen to them. He says, no, Father Abraham, nobody takes that stuff seriously. But they would pay attention if a dead man came back and warned them. And Abraham says, maybe they should take it seriously. Abraham says, if they won't pay attention to what's written in Scripture, then they will not be convinced even if someone rises from the dead. He says, Father Abraham, he appeals to this family connection. Father Abraham, sin Lazarus. He says, Abraham... Abraham says, no, he's not your flunky. There's a great chasm, and your friends should have read the Bible. He's totally unhelpful. So what do we do with this? What, what are the, the lessons here? I think that there's at least three. The first one is that a gate is not a chasm. But eventually, time will run out. That's number two. A gate... The rich man has a gate, but not yet a chasm. And after a while, time will run out. So you need to act while you have the opportunity. Number three, it won't hurt a rich man to open his gate. His scraps can be someone else's feast. All Lazarus wants is to eat what falls off his table. Now, for us, this is hard to believe, but in the ancient world, it was, it was, it's a documented fact. When you dined with somebody who was at a higher social status than you, you got lesser food. They actually ate, you know, they had steak and you had hamburger. 
That was just, people took it for granted. That was the way it worked in that society. And I think parables like this are how Jesus began to undo that. But literally, all Lazarus wanted was the scraps that fell from the man's table. So it won't hurt the rich man to open his gate. His scraps can be Lazarus's feast. And then number four, Jesus has a kind of a cynical outlook on celebration here on earth. He says it's a great opportunity to network. He says, you know, go to the party, go to the celebration because it's a great opportunity to network. He said just before this, earlier in this chapter, he said, he said, take, take advantage of the dishonest wealth you have right now to make friends who will invite you into their eternal homes. In chapter 14, the passage we heard also, he says, he says, don't Invite people who can repay you. Invite people who can't repay you. And then they will invite you in heaven. So Jesus says, a celebration is a great time to network. So what is he teaching us? You know, a lot of people read passages like this and they say, Jesus is basically the world's first communist. That he wants shared ownership of everything. And there are some very smart people who think that. I disagree with them. And I'm probably not as smart as them, so take what you hear with with a grain of salt. But when I read this passage, I think Jesus is up to something far greater than fixing the world's economic system. I think Jesus is calling us to be reconciled one to another, and all of us to God. He is telling us to open the gate. Jesus doesn't want us to be the kind of people who share ownership but are still selfish. Rather, he wants owners to be generous, to delight in sharing with people who don't have anything. I've been here five years. A couple of weeks ago, I celebrated my fifth year as your pastor. If you run through your mind, you know how often I bring up politics, but I cannot read this passage without reflecting on the political landscape we have today. I can't talk about walls and gates in a context like ours today, where we have perpetual debates about temporary restraining orders and executive orders and walls that will make America great and refugee crises. And I want to tell you, as you kind of clinch up to ignore me, I want to tell you, you don't know my politics. You really don't. And one of the things you don't know, probably, is how intensely, I believe, in a separation of church and state. But we are citizens in a democracy, and it's important we reflect on the outcomes of our decisions. Five years ago, I had the opportunity to baptize a little girl named Joanne Nadip Oben. And her mother, Gladys, took her back to Cameroon to deal with an with a immigration matter. And while they were there, tragedy struck. And they were both killed. And they're lost to us. Now, I'm not saying our immigration policies are why they died, but our immigration policies were why they were in Cameroon. The policies we talk about, the the policies we see on our nightly news, have real-world consequences for real people. And we need to think about the implications of those walls we erect. So when you go into the voting booth, if you're the kind of person who calls your senator, reflect. Let the Holy Spirit tell you what to do 
with today's lesson. But I'm not that kind of person. If you've been here five years, you know how seldom I have told you, which is to say zero. Have I times have I told you to call your senator? I'm not as concerned with what people in Washington do as what I do and what you do. And so I'm more concerned about how we live this out in our own lives. Jesus is saying, break down the gate. Jesus is saying, uh, open the gate, break down the wall, bring Lazarus into our celebration. The church should be a place of celebration. Bring Lazarus into your house. Feed him. And I'm not going to do it. That's the place I find myself. I am resisting the clear teaching of Scripture. And my guess is some of you are too. Some of you are probably better than this, better at this. Some of you are further along that path than I am. So let me talk to you. And if you're better than me, then please help me understand how I can become the kind of person Jesus is calling me to be. I just want to talk to the other people like me who are not inviting Lazarus into our house. Here's the first thing. If and when I do invite Lazarus into my house, it's because I've already been outside the gate and I met him there. Every week, four or five or six people from this congregation serve at the food bank down on 88th Street at the Nazarene Church. There's actually some people here from a totally different church um, visiting with us today who also volunteer there. And when you volunteer at the food bank there, the one at Cross Point or the one up at Turnigan, uh, Hope Lutheran in Turnigan, you have the opportunity to see 100, 120 Lazaruses every week. You get to know who they are. You get to see their face. Sometimes you get to hear their story. And I would encourage you, if like me, you're not at the place yet where you're willing to bring Lazarus into your house, at least go outside your gate and meet him there. Find a way that you can serve the Lazaruses of our community outside your gates. There's a second application, or a second ray of hope maybe. Jesus is all about baby steps. He encourages us to be part of a community of faith that can encourage us in turn as we take those baby steps. One of the things Jesus does is he says, look, I'm going to go first and lead the way. That's, that's really what, what Good Friday and Easter Sunday are all about. Jesus says, I will go first. I will die and I will be raised so you will have confidence that you too will be raised. And I think Jesus is calling us as a congregation, since we're not willing to let Lazarus into our house, he says, bring him into my house. And so my question for you is, what are the walls that are keeping Lazarus out of our, not our house, out of Jesus' house, out of this building, out of our fellowship here in this congregation? And how can we open those gates? You know, I know people are comfortable here. They, they love the church family that they already have. You know, so did the rich man. Jesus is saying, Lazarus is outside the gate. Bring him in. Celebrate with him. Let him eat scraps from your table. And my prayer for this church, and my request of you is that you would pray as well 
That Jesus will open our eyes, help us to see where are the invisible walls, the walls we walk right through, but that Lazarus gets stuck on. And this is a call to an active invitation. Lazarus is laid at the gate. What does that mean? He can't go through it on his own. Somebody comes along and drops him off at the gate. It's not enough to say, gate's open, come on in. Jesus is saying, we have to go out. We have to bring Lazarus in. So what is it going to take to make Lazarus welcome in our fellowship? Because I think for a lot of us, people like me, that's going to be where we start becoming the kind of people who invite Lazarus into our home. Let me conclude with this. Jesus said in chapter 14, you heard it. He said, don't invite people you know to your parties. I think Jesus is willing to make an exception for Easter. Easter is our greatest celebration. Number five, Easter is our greatest celebration. And I think that is supposed to be totally off the hook. Jesus wants us to invite, yes, the Lazarus, but also our friends, people who can repay us. He wants us to invite our friends and our neighbors, our co-workers. We're having two services this week, or this year, so that we'll be able to accommodate the people that Jesus is calling you to invite to our congregation. Let's make it a great celebration. Let's bring the Lazarus in. Let's bring our friends and family in too. Let's be a church that is all about celebrating. Let's pray. Father in heaven, it's so convicting for rich people like me to read Luke. I love this gospel and I am so frustrated because he just will not stay quiet when I want him to. He tells me things Jesus teaches about how to be rich, how to do it well. And I know I'm not where I need to be. So Lord, I pray that you would give me eyes to see Lazarus outside my gate and you'd give me courage to invite him into my home. And Lord, I pray the same thing for each member of this congregation, that you would help us to see the Lazaruses in our own lives. Help us to have the courage at least to go outside the wall and see him there. But then, Lord, as we become like Jesus, as we become people who are all about reconciliation, let us bring them into your home so they can join the celebration. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.